Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray now in your great mercy. You would convict us of the reality of the goodness of the reign of our Lord Jesus, uh, that we would know, as he says, that it is worth all, and we would be moved with joy to be included in his reign. Help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly, and let us, we pray, see Jesus in his name. Amen. Well, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. It's clear from these two parables that Jesus thinks that having a share in the kingdom of heaven, the coming reign of God promised to the Jewish people in their Old Testament, the coming reign of God which Jesus has been preaching as coming near in his ministry is worth everything. That it's like hitting the jackpot, having your dreams realised. You see, the first story that Jesus told was the Galilean peasants' version of winning the lottery. Uh, treasure hidden in a field was not as uncommon then as it is now, especially in Australia. Before banking became common, putting your valuables like coin and precious stones in a jar or box and burying them was a recognised way of keeping them safe. But people might die or be carried away and never be able to come back to reclaim their treasure. That seems to be the case here, for the owner of the field is plainly unaware of the treasure. It's not his, he hadn't put it there. But treasure did belong legally to whoever owned the field. Though while buried, it was reckoned as unclaimed. So perhaps this man was a hired ploughman, he's ploughing along, and the ploughshare hits a solid object. He stops, brushes the dirt off enough to recognise what it is and then quickly reburies it, covers up the treasure. The years of drudgery and want are past. Here is a possibility of financial security. This treasure is life transforming. So in his joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field and now the treasure is legally his. Jesus isn't dealing with the legality or morality of what he does, just his joyful recognition of the worth of what he's found. He gives everything for it. Whatever was his before can't be compared to the worth of that treasure. Hanging on to other things can't be allowed to get in the way of obtaining that treasure. Oh, the treasure wasn't what he was looking for when he went out to work that morning. But as soon as he saw it, he knew it was what he was longing for. He joyfully gives everything and he still reckons he's getting a bargain, just like the merchant. Pearls were very highly valued in the ancient world and sought by divers in the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. 
So this merchant is a man of means, dealing in luxury items, knowing what he values, searching for what he values. And knowing what he's looking for, he's willing to give up everything for this one pearl. He recognises that its worth exceeds all that he's thus far found, thus far accumulated in his life. It's incomparable. It's the end of his seeking. For the individuals who find it, however they find it, by stumbling across it and recognising that this is what they've been longing for or by diligently seeking because they know what they value, the kingdom is worth everything and at that price it's still a bargain. But why? Why can Jesus teach that having a share in the kingdom of heaven, being able to make it your own so that you belong in that reign is worth everything? Because looking beyond the parables, normally we would reckon such a radical investment in just one thing as imprudent. Don't put all your eggs in the one basket, we're told. Leave yourself options. What will you do if things go sour as they always do in this world? And so as that ploughman sells his tools and then his storage pots and then his spare cloak, you can imagine that peasant's friends asking, do you really want to do this? Oh, as he sells all his other pearls and his house and his donkey and even his bow tie, you can imagine the merchant's friends going and growing increasingly concerned. Why is having a share in the kingdom worth everything. Well, that probably was self-evident to Jesus' first hearers and their questions would might have been more about, you know, where they can find the kingdom, how they could obtain a share. Self-evident to them because they'd grown up with the Old Testament promises of God coming to save his people of the time when God's Messiah, his chosen king, would reign. But it's not self-evident to us. The phrase, the kingdom of heaven, well, when you first heard it, probably didn't excite you, create longing in you, because it's all a bit foreign to a people who live in democracies and don't think much about heaven as the place where God lives. And so to excite you about the kingdom, so that you come to share Jesus' evaluations of its worth, I suppose I could take you back through the Old Testament prophecies, help you understand what the people of Jesus understood and were looking forward to. I could do that, but I want to take another tack. I want to show you the worth of that kingdom by showing you the worth of the king of that kingdom. For the character of the kingdom, of the king determines the character of that kingdom. The character of the king determines the character of that kingdom and tells us why that kingdom is so good that it's worth everything. If you know the king of this kingdom, you will know why his reign is worth everything. And while Jesus is telling us this story, he's telling it in a gospel that makes it clear that Jesus is that king, the one who exercises the reign of God. Remember way back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, 
It's introduced with the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, the promised descendant of King David, the one in chapter 2 the Magi call born king of the Jews. Jesus is introduced at king, as king. Before his ministry begins, he is actually tested as son of God, the king of Psalm 2 in the wilderness. And that goes right through the gospel. You come to the end of the gospel, as Jesus is being crucified, he's crucified as king. King of the Jews is written across the top of the cross and raised from the dead. Jesus says he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the one who exercises God's reign over all things. And Jesus has said that it is in his presence that the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God, comes near. As he said to the Pharisees, if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. So what kind of king is he that his reign is worth everything? What do we see of Jesus in the gospel, in the eyewitness accounts of those who know him and knew him? And remember, you don't have to take my word for it. You can test what I'm saying just by reading a gospel or reading it with a friend or maybe enrolling in Christianity Explored. But What do we see of Jesus in the gospel? Well, we see he's kind. He makes time for parents with their concerns for the future of their young children when the disciples try and shoo them away. He touches a leper who's unclean. He intervenes at a widow's funeral to give her back her only son. He has a reassuring word for an ostracised woman healed of her bleeding. He's someone who spends himself without even time to eat, to serve, to deal with those who have come to him in need. And his teaching is good. It searches our hearts, exposing our selfishness, challenging us to love even our enemies and to forgive. He offers rest to the weary, hope for the crushed in spirit. And Jesus has integrity. He keeps his word, exposes hypocrisy, breaks human rules to do good like healing on the Sabbath or eating with sinners or comforting a weeping woman. He takes on those who abuse power to promote themselves and their wealth. And Jesus is seen as mighty, isn't he? He restores sight, he makes the lame walk, he gives hearing to the deaf and he can still with a word, a storm that would overwhelm and in all this he saves he brings the wholeness we were meant to enjoy gives a taste of the peace of God's reign to the afflicted oh he frees from the chaos and oppression of evil driving demons out and he can provide and does so out of compassion feeding thousands with a few loaves and fish And we've seen in the gospel that he can even forgive sins and raise the dead. And he is this, does all this as someone sent by the living God, God with us. So relating to him, you're relating to God, knowing God's might and truth, receiving God's forgiveness. This is the Jesus 
we meet in his ministry. Now think for a moment about our lives, about your life. What brings misery and grief? What throws our lives into turmoil? What do we live in dread of? Well, sickness and want. Being enslaved to evil, to destructive and chaotic patterns of living. Death, our own death and the death of those we love. A nature we can't control, whether in fire or drought or earthquake. Oh, human failure, lies, greed, abuse of power. They create misery in our lives. Oh, the consequences of our own failings in our relationships with others, felt in estrangement, misunderstanding, harboured anger, And yes, in our relationship with God when we let ourselves think of him. All things, all these things press us, create grief, and we live in dread of them. But Jesus has demonstrated he is Lord of those things that threaten us. He's Lord of sickness and death and the chaotic power of evil. He's Lord over nature And there's no lying or greed or selfishness with him. He doesn't fail us. And he forgives sins, gives God's forgiveness and brings his followers into a community of forgiveness. Now think, if you'd been in Galilee, wouldn't you have thought that being his, under his rule and direction, following him was worth it? In his presence, you wouldn't have to fear. Sickness, hunger, the spirits that tormented, a nature that could suddenly overwhelm death itself because Jesus is mighty, kind, faithful to his word and at peace with him, you're at peace with the living God. In Jesus' presence there was security, peace and truth that you could find nowhere and in no one else. It would be worth giving up everything to be his, to live under his rule. But that's not the whole story, is it? If you know the Gospels, what happens at the end of the Gospel would make you question whether committing yourself wholly to him was wise because in the end, in his trial and crucifixion, it looks so disappointing. Instead of crushing his enemies, defending his rule, he's crushed by them. Jesus is abandoned, shamed by the mocking of his enemies. He's powerless to sway the crowd, powerless to persuade Pilate, powerless to come down from the cross, powerless to stop the flies from settling on his drying blood. What he claimed about himself, seemingly empty. If you are the son of God, his enemies said mockingly, come down from the cross As he hangs there, it's obvious he is no king. And he's killed. And the dead, no matter how fine their words when living, can't do anything for anyone. A dead king is not worth giving up anything for. As Ecclesiastes says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. And when you think about it, a king who is yet to die, who will one day leave you 
no matter how good while alive, is not worth giving up all for either. You still have to consider the time to come when he won't be there. You have to make provision for yourself when he can't provide for you. You've got to reserve some part of your life just for you. No one who themselves is in bondage to death is worth entrusting your all, everything to, for you will be left abandoned with nothing at the moment of their death. But Jesus is not that king and never was the king whose reign would be ended by death. The gospel tells us Jesus is not a dead king and he is not a king who will ever die again. He lives and lives forever. He is and always was Lord of death. The death he endured on the cross, remember, only served his purposes to save his people. And now he's risen just as he said he would, living never to die again. The same king who walked in Galilee, who says his reign is worth all, now revealed in glory and revealed for all, not just those gathered around to hear his parables, but for all in all the world, revealed as forever Lord of all that threatens our lives, revealed as the one who exercises the judgment and forgiveness of God, the one who brings peace, the one who can make whole forever in the resurrection, whose forgiveness is the verdict of God at the last day. Oh, revealed now as loving with a love for his people that cannot be greater, giving his life for them, revealed as true in all he says with none surer, revealed as mighty with none stronger, not even death. Revealed as the king whose enemies can only serve, never threaten his rule. Oh yes, and revealed as dealing graciously with imperfect and frail followers. <coughs> to live under this king's rule is worth giving up everything for. To find him and recognise his goodness and the truthfulness of all he says his gracious kindness to all who turn to him, to be forgiven by him, welcomed into his family, included in his reign, that is worth everything. And his reign is not a passing moment of history, but eternal, a reign which, like him, is beyond comparison. All evil gone as he's promised, where justice and righteousness characterise all that's done where death is no more and lies are no more and hate is no more, a kingdom that's possessed securely by its citizens for forgiven and transformed by Christ's spirit, it won't be lost by our sin. A kingdom where we are caught up into the life of God, where we will see his face, a life immeasurably richer than anything we can imagine Yet the life Genesis 2 tells us humanity was made for. When you know the king, you know why having a share in his kingdom is worth everything. And seeing Jesus as the king of God's kingdom helps us understand the cost of obtaining 
the kingdom. It's the cost of following Jesus. Remember, Jesus said to his followers, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him or her deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And he spoke of that following as giving up our lives, losing our lives for his sake. So we mightn't have to sell all our property as those in the parables did to obtain the kingdom. And Jesus commanded the rich young ruler later in the gospel. But to follow is to say that it is his property. Whatever we own, all of it is his to be used as his wills. And, of course, the cost, <laughs> the cost of following doesn't end there. It includes much more important things than money or property. It involves identity, giving up our identity in our family, our ethnicity, our sexuality, to have our identity as a follower of Jesus. Oh, it involves direction, giving up choosing our own direction, making decisions on our own preferences to follow Christ, to have him give us our direction. It includes our ambition to abandon our ambition, to make a name for ourselves, to promote ourselves and our achievements, to become ambitious for Jesus, to live his way and bring his, him glory. It includes our reputation, being willing to lose it, to be slandered, to be thought a fool for Jesus' sake. It includes our relationships, loving Jesus more than all. To follow includes everything. But it is worth it because of Jesus and the character of the reign he brings. It's good to belong to him, to be forgiven by him, to be taught by him, to be changed by his spirit, to be raised by him. You don't need a plan B. When the faithful and loving king who is committed to saving you lives forever with all authority. You can give up everything for him. The value of the kingdom is found first in the king. You make your judgment about the worth of his reign on his worth. That's true then and it's true now. But to recognise Jesus as he is, whether you stumble across him or call out to him in a moment of need or have been searching for truth and love, for righteousness and peace and find it in him, to recognise Jesus as he is, is to know he is worth everything. It's no wonder that generation after generation, the oppressed and afflicted, those burdened with guilt and fear, those who know like you and I, they must die and face judgment, joyfully give up all to belong to this king, to have a place in his kingdom. You see, what value money and property, which will perish, compared to being given life by this living king? And whatever our identity, whatever we pride ourselves on, it won't raise us from the dead as Jesus will. What value running our lives if we only run them down to death where Christ will direct us to life, 
What else to be ambitious for except to rise with Christ and see his glory? What worth a reputation that will be quickly forgotten when we moulder in the grave, when we can be known by Jesus forever? What other love to long for than the love that has loved us to the full? the love from which we will never be separated, the love that is generous and merciful, the love that can save those we love. So, believer, we give up all with joy to belong to Jesus. And like Paul, reckon it no loss at all compared to the worth of being his. And we know joy even in our suffering, in our trials in belonging to him, in being given by him a secure place in his kingdom, in knowing that those trials only serve his good purpose for us. So at this time, let me encourage you to know and show that joy by remembering Jesus, his words, his graciousness and kindness, his faithfulness and might, his forgiveness and justice. The kingdom Jesus preaches is worth all because he is worth all God's righteous saving king and he brings all wholeness life without fear of death enduring faithful love for each of his people have you given your all to belong to this kingdom to make it your own by becoming Jesus own Have you been held back until now by the cost? Once you see Jesus' greatness, it is not a burden to be asked to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him. It's not an imposition to be called to give up your life for him. To know him is to desire him and to rejoice to be able to give all for him. And you should do it now, for finding the kingdom now with joy is better than letting the kingdom find you at the last day unprepared. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus likens the kingdom to a large dragnet drawn along between two boats to make the point that the kingdom involves all. The reign of Jesus is relevant to all. In the end, Jesus is the king you can't avoid. And I want to speak now to those who are not yet believers. Uh, You might know someone who has become a Christian. That might even be why you're listening today. And you might have thought, good for them. You've seen the change, seen that joy, you thought, good for them. But kept on thinking, it's not for me. Oh, it's something about which I can remain neutral, uncommitted, thinking I can just keep living my way. Not true, says Jesus. The kingdom will involve all. And the kingdom, like Jesus, will divide at the last day. 
You see, this parable is a bit like the story Jesus told earlier of the wheat and the weeds, speaking of the coexistence of the wicked and the righteous until the last day. Here it's the kosher and non-kosher fish. They swim in the same pool, they're caught up in the same net alongside each other and are only separated once the net is dragged onto the shore. And so the righteous and the wicked live alongside each other until the final day. But on that day, the difference will be seen between those who have listened to Jesus and trusted him and listening to him and trusting him sought his kingdom and his righteousness, sought to do what he has taught. The difference will be seen between those who have listened to Jesus and trusted him and the evil, those who have kept on rejecting God and his ways by rejecting his King Jesus. And that difference will make all the difference, an eternal difference. Why? Why does the kingdom mean there will be a final discriminating judgment and a separation of the righteous from the unrighteous? You know, sometimes we can think of judgment as just arbitrary or Christians or even God as being, you know, just a little bit spiteful in insisting on that reality. But just as the worth of the kingdom to those who recognise it is determined by the king and the nature of the kingdom he brings, so judgment is determined by the nature of the king and the kingdom he brings. Think of Jesus. Jesus is God with us, holy and righteousness, and he he is truth and love, lies and hate. Selfishness and destructive desire can have no place in his presence and he rules and those who resist his rule cannot abide his presence. That's right, isn't it? That's what we see in his life, that those who resist his rule detest his presence can't tolerate his claims, can't stand his rule, want to get rid of him, to kill him. In their eyes, there's no coexistence possible where Jesus insists that he is king and what they desired, they got. They crucified him. But it wasn't their triumph, but their defeat. It wasn't the life they thought they could have, but death that they were choosing. And so it is in the judgment for those who want to stay in charge of their own lives, keep being their own ruler. They don't want Jesus in their life. Jesus, Lord of the new heaven and earth. And the Lord Jesus will give them what they want. They will have, can have, no coexistence with the one who is the king. And wanting no part of the life of Jesus, they will find there is no life apart from Jesus. And they'll recognise that. They'll recognise that. To separate themselves from him is to have embraced eternal destruction when God's patience runs out. See, this judgment is not arbitrary and it is just. And think of the kingdom Jesus brings. It can and is, can only be for the righteous, for those who can live in the presence of God. For this is at the heart of God's kingdom idea. 
God's people living in God's presence just as it was in Eden. Oh, just as Israel was meant to be, God's people living in God's presence. And as Israel's history has shown, there's no place in God's presence for those who want to reject God's rule, those who are defiled, unclean by their disobedience. The heart of the kingdom is living in the presence of the holy God. And only Jesus can fit people for that. Only he can, by his death for sin, make sinful people righteous. Only by turning away from our own rule, our own determination to live as we please and reject God's law and putting our faith in Jesus can we receive from Jesus forgiveness, be reckoned righteous in God's sight, cleansed and fitted for God's presence. Only those who are in Christ can live in that kingdom and it be the kingdom we long for, without injustice, without grief, without death. There is nothing arbitrary about the exclusion of the wicked, those who refuse to repent and believe in Jesus, those who insist on believing their own lies about God and themselves. Nothing arbitrary about their exclusion forever from the kingdom of Christ. Nothing unjust in them suffering the consequences of their choice. And Jesus uses language that is fearful to bring home the awfulness of those consequences. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hear what Jesus says. It is no service to Christ or to those who want to continue to ignore or reject Jesus to either soften or deny what Jesus says here. Better to heed it yourself and warn others of what awaits if they want to keep Jesus out of their lives and reject his good rule. The Lord Jesus is king of the whole world. His reign encompasses all. But only those who are righteous now by trusting and following Jesus will be revealed then as fit to live in God's presence. Make sure that is you. Make sure that's you by asking God to open your eyes to see Jesus as he is, the good, the ever-living, the just and loving King so that you will reckon it a joy, not a burden or unwelcome demand, to give up all now to follow him and to have a secure, certain share in his reign, worth all to be gathered to him with exceeding joy when at the close of the age he sends his angels out and they separate the righteous from the wicked and he welcomes his people into his presence forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, that is what we pray. Open our eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus, to know him and to see that following him is worth all. And help us to persevere in that following with joy knowing the goodness of belonging to Jesus forever. We ask this in his name. Amen.